go and have fun. I wish I was young again. <laughs> well, good morning. It's uh, really good to be with you again. Joan and I always enjoy uh, coming here and sharing fellowship with you, whether I'm preaching or occasionally we, we just visit because we've got so many friends here. And I'm grateful to John for um, asking me to uh, participate in this series on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, I've been blessed as I've meditated on this. I I read them through again, both books, books a couple of weeks ago, and and something struck me and uh, stirred me that I've never particularly focused on before. Uh, in the way that I did this time as, as I read these books. But the thing that really gripped me was the sense that God is moving at this stage in history. It, it's an outworking of the purpose of God, particularly in, uh, in Israel at that time. And uh, um, that, that's the thing that I want uh, to focus on with you this morning, not just in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but um, also to show you some examples of ways in which God has, has broken through <coughs> and moved in a powerful way in Christian history as well. I came across a quote the other day. I've been reading a couple of books by A.W. Tozer. Some of you will know of him. He's been a, a popular writer, a, a prophetic writer. Uh, he died a number of years ago, but... Um, He's still speaking to us through his writings. And recently, some uh, new works of his have come to light, Uh, some talks and some magazine articles, and they've been brought together uh, into a couple of books, which I have been reading. Joan bought them for me for my birthday. And uh, I I came across a terrific quotation. Uh, He says this, History is God's footprints. You got that? History is God's footprints. And we can sometimes miss the wood for the trees when we're looking at things and even uh, taking a little section out of the Bible. We can miss the wood for the trees. And so I want us to focus on the bigger picture this morning as we think about these two men in particular, these godly men, Ezra and Nehemiah. Here's a summary of how we may look at the Bible. There are many ways in which we may approach the Bible, but here's one way for you. The Bible is the story of God's faithfulness to a wayward, recalcitrant people. It's what it's all about, isn't it? Though they're wayward and often fickle, uh, yet God remains faithful right through the Bible. And still, today, of course, uh, uh, he is faithful putting it in a slightly different way. It is the story of God coming again and again to restore, renew, and revive. That's the Bible. God coming again and again to restore, renew, and revive his people. Here's a quotation from the great American uh, Christian leader of 250 years ago, Jonathan Edwards. And he wrote a great book entitled The History of Redemption. And he says this in his introduction. 
from the fall of man to our day, the work of redemption has mainly been carried on by remarkable outpourings of the Spirit of God. There is always some influence of God's Spirit attending our service. Yet, the way in which the greatest things have been done to carry forward God's work always have been by remarkable effusions at special seasons of mercy. That's what we call revival nowadays, isn't it? Uh, But um, that was Jonathan Edwards' way of speaking about it. And so I want us this morning to put Ezra and Nehemiah into that setting. It was a time when God moved again to restore and strengthen his people. And he always has a purpose in doing this. If you have read the history of revival, you know there have been times in various parts of the world where revival has come to prepare God's people for a period of persecution or war. There have been other times when revival has come after a period of great persecution and people have thought the church is dead, Christianity is uh, extinguished, that's the end of it, let's get on with our lives. But then God has moved in a new and powerful way. The greatest example of that, I guess, is modern-day China. The missionaries were thrown out of China in 1951-52, and uh, 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 we heard something of the tremendous persecution that the church in China suffered, in particular during what was called the Cultural Revolution, that evil time when Mao reigned, Uh, like a a, a demonic uh, god uh, over the people. And we heard of of Christians being persecuted and and being annihilated, being executed and so on. And and missionaries thought the church was dead. But when in 1989 or the early 80s, China began to open up a little under uh, Deng Xiaoping when Mao was dead, Um, Some old missionaries, some known to to Joan and I, went back wondering what they would find. And what they found was a vibrant, lively church, bigger than anything that they could have imagined. And uh, even today, the church in China is still growing at the rate of 20,000 converts every single day of the week, all over China. And there are vastly more believers in China than there are in Britain. There are around 10% of believers in China, whereas true born-again believers in this country are 3 or 4%, even though we have a Christian heritage of uh, getting on towards 2,000 years. And, uh, and God is still moving in a remarkable way. So it's wonderful, isn't it? So let's, let's think of Ezra and Nehemiah in this way. And Uh, if if I wanted to give you a reason for the way God moved at that time, it it would be this. It was to prepare his people in those days for the coming 400 years of silence. Because Ezra and Nehemiah come almost at the end of the Old Testament period. After them, there was just one more prophet, a man by the name of Malachi. 
And he was probably when they were uh, still alive, when they were elderly, uh, men maybe still living in Jerusalem. But the final voice in the Old Testament was Malachi. And then there were to be those 400 years of silence. So God came in a new way to bless and refresh his people, to restore godly worship and, and godly living in Jerusalem, to give them a degree of security and unity uh, through the rebuilding of the wall under Nehemiah in preparation for those years of silence. And when you think of Ezra and Nehemiah in that way, their names are really quite in- interesting. The, he- the English meaning of the Hebrew name Ezra is helper. God was sending them help at a time when they were in need and under threat. Um, And the name Nehemiah, the Hebrew word Nehemiah, means comforter. So here was the Lord coming graciously at a time in their history when they particularly needed help and comfort and refreshing from the Lord. Let me give you one or two quotes, although I'm not referring largely uh, to to these two books. I I do want to tie in what I'm saying uh, to these men and to their ministry. So let me give you one or two quotes that that will bring out this this sense of God uh, that that we have in these two books. So here's a, a quote from the book of Ezra, and I'm reading it from the Amplified Version because it puts it, I feel, in, in a better way than the New International Version for us this morning. So here he is then, on his knees, spreading out his hands to the Lord, he says, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers, we have been exceedingly guilty. And for our willfulness, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hands of the kings of the lands to the sword, captivity, plundering and utter shame as it is today and now. For a brief moment, grace has been shown us by the Lord our God, who has left us a remnant to escape and has given us a secure hold in his holy place. The Hebrew word there is nail. He has given us a nail in the holy place, something to hold on to, something that records our presence there, something um, that, that we possess, as it were. So he's given us a nail in the holy place, a secure hold, that our God may brighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. So Ezra was aware of the move of God, reviving, bringing his people in, restoring a a, a sense of of identity and belongingness to God and security in him. So there's Ezra. Uh, Here's one also from the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Sorry, that that passage was Ezra chapter 9, by the way, verses 6 to 8. And here is Nehemiah, again from the Amplified Bible, uh, in chapter 8. I'm I'm taking some verses... um, spread out a little bit because we have lists of names that it isn't profitable for us to dwell on this morning. 
So verse 1. Then all the people gathered together as one man in the broad place before the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given Israel. And then in verse 5, Ezra opened the book in sight of all the people, for he was standing above them. In the old authorised version, it says uh, he was standing on a pulpit of wood. It's the only uh, mention of the, of the term pulpit in the whole of the Bible, but it, it's, it's um, an English um, insert, actually. So there he was then, raised above them, and when he opened the book of the law, God's, God's law through Moses, all the people stood up as an indication of their great reverence and devotion to it. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Nehemiah, who was governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then Ezra told them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to him for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. And be not grieved and depressed, for the joy of the Lord is your strength and your stronghold. You see, it's God, it's God. And these people were, were, were conscious that God was moving, that God was with them, that God was, was favouring them and blessing them and restoring them, even though they didn't deserve it. And uh, later on, of course, they go on to deal with sin and with uh, offences against the law and so on. So uh, you, you see all this. It's just, just so important to sense God, that history is God's footprints. Here are some other words. Now, you may not be aware of this, but evangelical scholars believe that Ezra was the author of the two books of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, in addition to writing his own book, and also he was the editor of the book of Nehemiah. We, we, we say that because although a lot of Nehemiah is written in the first person, the grammar and the style are the same as the book of Ezra and of the two books of Chronicles. So Ezra, you see, was a prolific writer and a man who was conscious of history and the outworking of God's purposes in history. Now, listen to some words that he wrote that will be familiar to you from the second book of Chronicles. If I shut up heaven so that no rain falls, or I command locusts to devour the land... Or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. That's, that's God's purpose, isn't it? That's the way God works. Uh, dear old Matthew Henry, the great Puritan uh, commentator on the Bible, he put it like this. When God purposes a blessing for his people, 
he first of all sets them a praying. So God has done this, he's devoured the land, Uh, his people have been disciplined and cast out of the land for 70 years and sent into exile, but then God is preparing to restore them and bless them again, and we have these men of prayer who are examples to us of the spirit and heart of the nation as they seek God and wait upon him. So, I I trust you're getting what I'm trying to convey to you this morning, this sense of God moving in history and the way that when he has a purpose, he prepares his people and then suddenly he comes. I was meditating on that word suddenly this morning. Funnily enough, it was in the bath. But uh, it just, just occurred to me because I was thinking, when, Lord, when? When are you going to bless us again? When are you going to pour out your spirit again? When are you going to send revival again? And, and the word came to me suddenly. And it's a biblical word. For instance, on the day of Pentecost, we read that they were all gathered together in one place, worshipping and waiting on God. Suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Suddenly. In the book of Malachi, the very last book of the Bible, as I've said in in his third chapter, he says, the Lord, the messenger whom you seek, shall suddenly come to his temple. That's God, suddenly. And I was reminded of a great hymn of Charles Wesley, Love Divine. Do you remember it? I'm sure you do. Come, almighty to deliver. Let us all thy grace receive. Suddenly return, and never, never more thy temples leave. Don't you want that? Don't you hunger for that? Oh, God, when? When are you going to come? When are you going to move by your spirit? When are you going to have mercy upon this nation and this generation of ours in their lostness and their misery and their headlong pursuit of pleasure, which is actually a lemming-like race to the, to the cliff, isn't it? To the precipice, suddenly return, and never, never more thy temples leave. Thee we would be always blessing, serve thee as thy hosts above. Pray and praise thee without ceasing, glory in thy perfect love. That's God. That's God, folks. You never know when. When I was a pastor, I sometimes would, would castigate people for being so indifferent in their, in their support of, of the church and um, hitting and missing on a Sunday. And, and sometimes they had legitimate reasons, but very often it was because they had a hangover or I don't know what. Um, but, you know, and I used to say, listen, one day God is going to come. God is going to come by his spirit. And if you're missing, you'll spend the, le- the rest of your life regretting it. Suddenly, we never know. You know, are you expectant this morning? Do you anticipate that God could do something this morning? We, we must be like that because we never know. And the longer it goes on, the shorter the time for God to come again. That's the way it works. So we must be so careful that we don't become dispirited or, or depressed about it. Now, I want to read you a few quotations in order to to stir you. Those of you who are familiar with my ministry know that I sometimes do this. 
because I read a lot of history. And I want you to get a sense of what God can do or what God may do at any time. Here's a quotation from an outpouring of the Spirit of God at an old Methodist camp meeting. In the days when the frontiers of America were being pushed farther and farther westward across the plains, over the Rockies, ultimately onto the West Coast and so on, um, uh, the, the Methodists particularly were tremendously zealous in holding camp meetings. They would gather the frontiers people together and preach to them and lead them in worship and, uh, and, and plead with them to, to trust in the Lord and so on. And uh, this is the story of a camp meeting in a place called Cane Ridge in Kentucky, near where Fred comes from uh, in the USA. So this was in the early 1800s under the ministry of a great Methodist preacher by the name of Peter Cartwright. And this is a record, um, it's an article written by a young newspaper reporter. And he was an atheist, he didn't believe in God, but he was sent to this camp meeting because it was so large, 20,000 people gathered with their wagons and their kids and their cattle and everything. You can just imagine, bigger than Stonely. And, um, and, and, and God came. God came in a powerful way. And so this young atheist reporter, he's really struggling with language to describe exactly what was happening when God came. So listen to this. The noise was like the roar of Niagara. The vast sea of human beings seemed to be agitated as if by a storm. I counted seven ministers, all preaching at the same time. Imagine, well, at least you could choose your minister, couldn't you? <laughs> now, if you didn't fancy one preacher, you could go and try another. But, well, there were so many people there, you see, and they didn't have amplification or anything, so that's what they were doing. Uh, some were standing on stumps, some on wagons, and one on a fallen tree. Some people were singing. Others were praying. Some crying for mercy in the most piteous tones, while others were shouting vociferously. While witnessing these scenes, a peculiarly strange sensation, such as I have never felt before, came over me. My heart beat tumultuously. My knees trembled, my lips quivered, and I felt as, as though I must fall to the ground. A supernatural power seemed to pervade the entire mass of humanity there collected. I stepped up on a log where I could have a better view of the surging sea of people. The scene that presented itself to my mind was indescribable. At one time, I saw at least 500 people swept down in a moment as if a battery of guns had opened on them. And then immediately there followed shrieks and shouts that rent the heavens. This young reporter says, I fled for the woods and wished that I had remained at home. So, so awesome was the sense of God's presence and it was something he, he professed he didn't believe in. You know, there was no God to his way of thinking, but something was there that he couldn't discern or um, analyse in his modern scientific thinking. <clears throat> a, a historian has recorded this. 
the frontier was radically transformed. Instead of gambling, cursing and vice, spirituality and genuine Christianity characterised much of the early westward movement of the settlers. It was God's great hour and the revival stopped scepticism in its tracks. That's God, suddenly. That's what God can do at any time. Uh, He can move in that way. Now let's go to the middle of the 19th century, uh, what was called the prayer meeting revival of 1857. God laid a call on the heart of a young man by the name of Jeremiah Lamphia to give up his business and become a city missionary in New York. With social collapse staring the city in the face, Lamphia walked the streets passing out ads for a midday prayer meeting in a downtown New York church. This is what the leaflet said. How often shall I pray? As often as the language of prayer is in my heart. As often as I see my need of help. As often as I feel the power of temptation. As often as I am made sensible of any declension. Or... Uh, feel the aggression of a worldly spirit. In prayer, he wrote, we leave the business of time for that of eternity. Intercourse with men for intercourse with God. And then he gave details of the prayer meeting. On the first day, Lamphia waited alone for 30 minutes. Then six men came in, prayed for 20 minutes and went back to work. The next week, there were 20 people. The following week, there were 40. After six weeks, the numbers had grown, so they decided to hold a daily prayer meeting. And then, and this is God's timing, this is the way he works, a great financial panic hit the city of New York, and people were stirred to call upon God. Within six months, 10,000 businessmen were meeting every day in halls and churches all over New York, confessing their sin, getting saved, and praying for revival. They say men, because in those days, women generally didn't go out to work. And so it was the men who were calling upon God. They were the ones who were in the centre of New York and who attended these prayer meetings. The blessing spread, and America began to live again. In just two years, over one million converts were added to the churches. The social and ethical effects were felt for half a century. The blessing crossed the Atlantic. Britain and parts of Europe were affected. There were 100,000 converts in Northern Ireland, 100,000 in Wales, 300,000 in Scotland, all at the same time, Because God can jump across ponds, can't he? Nothing is too difficult for him. And in England, there were over half a million converts. Those were the early days of the great ministry of C.H. Spurgeon at his famous Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. God, you see, God. When God chooses to move, nobody can withstand. Nobody can resist. And the great work of redemption surges forward like a tidal wave around the world under the blessing of God. We need that again, don't we?
we need that again. Let me bring you now into the 20th century to Wales, the famous 1904 revival in Wales. When it burst, there were less than 20 known intercessors, just a small number of people, mostly elderly, who had it laid on their hearts to pray for God to move, for God to pour out his spirit and revive his church again. So only a handful to begin with. doesn't need to be a big thing, uh, but, but God was preparing the ground. Soon the churches of Wales were crowded for more than two years. Once again, as in the revival of 1857, 100,000 converts were added to the churches. Drunkenness was cut in half and many taverns went bankrupt. Crime was so diminished that judges were presented with white gloves to signify that there were no cases of serious crime to try. The police were virtually unemployed in many districts. They had two things to do. They would go around so that they could um, shepherd the crowds who were wanting to go into the churches and make sure that everybody found a seat and everything went along smoothly. And a second thing that they used to do was sing. Because you know people love to sing in Wales. Jonas did, didn't he? So um, they would form... That took a little while, didn't it? There was a pause and then suddenly the penny dropped. Anyway, um, yeah, and, and they would form singing groups. And the policemen would get up on the platform and sing Cum Ronda and various other great Welsh songs and hymns and so on. So, <clears throat> but listen to this. The coal mines stopped working with transport problems. The little pit ponies didn't understand the cleaned up language of the converted miners. <laughs> they were used to being sworn at and cursed and kicked and so on. After five years, at least 80% of the converts were still true. And those who were not killed in the First World War lasted well into the 1930s. God again moving. God coming. Let me read you a little bit now from the last major revival in the British Isles. It wasn't actually on the mainland. It was among the Hebridean Islands off the west coast of Scotland. And it lasted from 1949 to about 1951. And this is is a little snippet from Duncan Campbell's biography. He was the evangelist whom God mainly used as the agent of revival um, in the Hebridean blessing. And he writes this, or or he says this. It is difficult to convey the sense of livingness that prevails in a community where God is working. Livingness. He says, the very air seems to be tingling with divine vitality. Everything, grass, stones, sea and sky, seem to cry out, God is here. Even a fly buzzing around a lamp became God's messenger to a hardened sinner in the island of Lewis. He watched the insect for a moment, and then he muttered, if you go much closer, you'll get burned. 
his own words boomeranged into his soul. And in a flash, he saw the danger of playing with sin and was moved to seek Christ and to find salvation. Duncan described this revival aura simply and accurately in his famous definition of revival. A community saturated with God. A community saturated with God. Makes you hungry, doesn't it? Makes you thirsty. The presence of God was a universal, inescapable fact. At home, in the church, and by the roadside. Many who visited the Hebrides during this period became vividly conscious of this spiritual atmosphere even before they reached the island. One night, a man came to a minister's home in great concern. The minister brought him in and asked him, What touched you? I haven't seen you at any of the services. No, he said, I haven't been. I haven't been to church. But this revival is in the air, he says. I can't get away from the spirit. And as a result, he confessed his sins and came to the Lord Jesus Christ. God coming. Suddenly, God's purposes. God moving forward the outworking of his purposes for redemption and salvation. Anything is possible. I picked up a quote from a little prayer um, um, prompter that I, I, I take regularly. Each day it gives you something about a different nation of the world and things that are happening in different parts of the world. I referred to China earlier. This is something that I came across about India. And this is not 50 years, 100 years, 200 years ago. This is today. It's happening now. Persecution is not stopping the work of God throughout India. At a recent pastor's conference, it was estimated that in one region alone, over 7,000 people are turning to Jesus every day. And a church is established every three minutes. This is in Hindu India. And some of you have read of the persecution, particularly in Orissa. People have been tortured and killed. Their homes have been torched. People have been burned uh, uh, to death um, because they were prevented from leaving their homes after they had been torched. And yet, this is what is happening. As evangelists and churches move among the people with increasing faith and love, God is sending amazing signs. In a village in Bihar province, its four witch doctors controlled people by cursing their cattle and their relatives. When the Christians have arrived, these witch doctors warned them that they too would be cursed. The Christians continued to love the people in Jesus' name, and in a few weeks, the witch doctors came to ask them the secret of their power. They had called up demonic forces to attack the Christians, but the demons had returned, saying, we can do nothing against them. They are surrounded by angels and by fire. As they spoke with the evangelists, the conviction of God fell on all four witch doctors and they were converted and delivered from evil. The whole village followed, amazed 
at the power of God. That has happened in the last couple of months in India. Sometimes we get a bit discouraged, don't we? Oh, we say, when is it going to happen? When is God going to bless? Listen, folks, lift up your eyes and behold the fields, white indeed under harvest. Britain is not the centre of the universe. God is at work in many parts of the world. So we need to call upon him and seek him. Now, I was encouraged to read this as I draw to a close. This is um, the president of the Baptist Union. I used to be a Baptist, some of you know. I still believe in baptism, but I'm not a traditional Baptist anymore. But here is the president, this year's president of the Baptist Union. I'm glad to see it's a black man, Kingsley Appiah Gay, if that's the way you pronounce his name, I think it's great um, that, that they've recognised a, a dear brother in that way and made him their president. So here's his little article in their latest magazine. Recently, it was reported in the news that a 16-year-old teenager in an unprovoked attack was stabbed to death in the neck. This is just one tragic story among hundreds of tragic events that plague our nation not to mention teenage pregnancies, binge drinking, abused children and women, and many other things. These events are symptomatic of the spiritual decline of our nation. The moral foundation of our nation is so much eroded that we are on the brink of collapse. He quotes from the Psalms, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? And he says this then, shall we remain idle while the world slips into Christless graves? In the economy of God's kingdom, there are times and seasons in which God does significant and particular works of grace. I believe we are in one such season. It's a season of prayer to humble ourselves before God and pray for revival. May we be like the children of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what Israel ought to do. That's the book of Judges, isn't it? It's time to act. Apathy and inactivity are not an an option for us. The great old revival preacher Leonard Ravenhill said, we have to travail in prayer before we can triumph with power. This was beautifully portrayed in Leeds in 1920, where God used the pastor of a small Pentecostal church to bring a move of his spirit. In the opinion of many, the pastor was unlearned and ignorant, but he fasted often and prayed boldly. He, along with others, laid seeds to the throne of God Almighty because they believed the biblical promise, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. They laid a foundation of prayer for a great revival. Welsh evangelist George Jeffreys was invited to this small church in Leeds, where he preached Christ crucified. In three weeks, 3,000 people were touched by the power and love of God, and many healings took place. These moves of God did not happen after a great theological debate on contemporary issues or a little talk on prayer. 
There was travail of souls for days and weeks, daring Christians, in spite of loads of criticism, to hold on to God until he moved. Does this touch your hearts this morning, dear friends? I trust it does. I trust it stirs you. We've become too comfortable, haven't we? Too at ease. Let me close by reading you a prayer of Sir Francis Drake. Do you remember the story of the Spanish Armada? Sir Francis Drake was one of Queen Elizabeth's great explorers and adventurers. And um, he, um, he, he was the one who insisted on finishing his game of bowls on Plymouth Hoe when the Armada was sailing up the English Channel. Listen to this prayer of his. Disturb us, O Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves or when our dreams have come true because we have dreamt too little, when we arrive safely because we have sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when, with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heavens to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of land we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hope and to push into the future, for us to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. Disturb us, Lord. Maybe that's where we need to begin in these days. We need to begin by saying, disturb us, Lord. Stir us up. Discomfort us. Make us feel uncomfortable. Ill at ease. Instead of being so relaxed and affluent and, uh, and, and comfortable and uh, uh, sailing along um, uh, with a lovely breeze behind us. Disturb us, O oh Lord. Remember those verses again from Second Chronicles? If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. May that day soon come. Amen.
don't be afraid to just to cry out to God.